Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Hey, Becky. Hi, everybody. We've just got a kind of a special air in the room today. We're so excited for our We're going to Indiana and we're talking about what happens when someone has a life experience that profoundly changes them and they lean into that purpose while honoring legacy. I'm just really excited about what we're about to have a conversation Yeah, I mean, it comes up a lot on the podcast, just the power of lived experience. And, you know, I think that there is a reckoning happening right now that a lot of people are pouring into their purpose. But today we have the opportunity to talk to somebody who has been doing this for 20 plus years of translating her lived experience of losing her father uh, to lymphoma and really paying that experience forward as a family that was trying to support and provide care and to be with him when he was in his journey. And so today we're talking to Amy Torres, the founder and CEO and executive director. Goodness, that's Mm -hmm. so many titles for (laughs) Paul's Place. And Paul's Place is an incredible mission that we want to introduce you to and have Amy kind of share the story. But, you know, they provide comfort and support, all the kind of creature comforts of being at home when you have to be away at home to take care of your family. And we were telling Amy right before we started, from our experience in healthcare philanthropy, like this probably had to be the thing that nagged at us the most of just, you want to help patients and you want to provide care. And, but at the end of the day, you've got caregivers around them that are exhausted and tired and, and honestly need a place to get rest and recovery. And so your type of mission just really does speak to the hands and feet of what people need, you know, at a time of care. And so I'm excited to learn from you today and hear about your mission. Amy, welcome to the podcast. So glad you're here. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to uh, talk with you folks. You bet. You know, tell us your story and let's fill in some context of what's what did life look like growing up and kind of paint a picture of your family and then that can lead into, you know, how this all came to be. Um, well, I was born and raised here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. My parents divorced very early on, but they always had a great relationship. So we always, you know, got to see my father. He'd come over anytime and we really started our bond that early. Um, my father and I had a great bond. And when I graduated from high school, I went down to the University of Texas at Austin. So just past y'all down there. And when I was a sophomore in high school, he actually had a heart transplant. That was, um, he, at that time, he was the 52nd heart transplant here in Indiana. So just, you know, just a couple of years beyond experimental doing um, extremely well with the transplant. They gave him a lifespan of about five years. We always had a great strong bond relationship. Um, you know, my family all stayed here in Indiana, um, very much extended family on his side and my mom's side here in Indiana. So I was kind of like, I wouldn't say the black sheep of the family, but the most adventurous one I went down to UT. <laughs> I like that. So, yeah. So it was good. Um, right about the time I finished college, um, in 99, I graduated in May and in September of 99, my father called me and he's like, Hey, I'm actually in the hospital here in Houston. I'm not feeling very well. The doctors want you to come up for the weekend. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I put it. And when I got there, they said he had been diagnosed with lymphoma. Mm-hmm. It was uh, brought on by the anti-rejection medication from his heart transplant. Mm-hmm. And that they were just going to give him medicine to keep him comfortable and go from there. 20-something-year-old me didn't realize 
they didn't really expect him to live throughout the weekend. So um, we, we stayed there. Um, I stayed with a family friend who was a medical student there and um, he made it through the weekend. He continued on for about two weeks and he ended up getting strong enough to do chemotherapy. So that's kind of how it started. And that's kind of really where my journey begins with the foundation of how everything started. I, I want to first just say like my condolences to you on losing your father. I know it was, you know, a couple decades ago, but that mm-hmm. I just can't imagine that that, that wound just never quite heals. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to draw a really interesting parallel in what you just said um, with this journey. We noticed this in healthcare philanthropy and um, I think you've pointed it out and I think it's why maybe your mission is so successful. This, this idea of hospitality, this mm-hmm. idea of concierge in philanthropy, it really aligns with this notion that we have that everyone matters. And when you treat someone so well, mm-hmm. when they come into your house, and I use the air quotes of house, you know, when they come into your organization, when you treat them at the top level, like a VIP, something happens and the connection is so ingrained. And the fact that you're pairing that with this deeply personal story of something that you experienced and something that you wanted to make better is just a really beautiful lesson. So I want to go into Paul's place and I want to hear this inception story. And it's just, it's a way to pay kindness forward and you learned some things and you were able to wrap a mission around it. So kind of talk to us about where this came from and how it started. Sure. Sure. So like I said, we, he went, about two weeks and he was strong enough to do chemotherapy. So at this point I knew I need to find something different for housing. You know, I, I, we were in Houston. I was, I had an apartment in Austin. I knew I couldn't go back and forth. He definitely, he was in ICU. So we couldn't go back and forth with me. And so I was talking with the ICU nurses and, and can, they were wondering too, like, well, Hey, where are you staying at? And I'm like, just kind of couch surfing right now with a family friend. He's a medical student, but he's going through midterm. So I'm, I'm trying to, you know, be as quiet as possible, but still, you know, just kind of do what I can here. And they said, oh, we can do much better. So they ended up finding a church organization that provided fully furnished apartments for families in our situation that were coming to Houston for medical treatment. So there's a big medical center, um, medical campus there in, in Houston. There's probably six or seven hospitals there. And uh, the one we were at was literally within walking distance, five minute walking distance from the apartment that was at. So it was, it was great. The church that had those apartments actually uh, the next day after I talked with the, uh, with the nurses, they said, we have an apartment for you. It's provided by such and such church. Keep it clean. It's fully furnished. Just bring your own food and your own toiletry items and um, you'll be good to go. So they gave me the keys and the address. And it was actually on the other side of the apartment complex that I was already in. Oh, my gosh. It was just it was great. Now I'm just walking. I'm not even driving to the hospital. So it was such a major blessing on all kinds of fronts. I didn't have to pay utilities. I, there was no charge or donation request for me to be there. I wouldn't be able to do anything anyway because I wasn't working. I was in the hospital all day with my father. He would get treatment for about three or four days and then recover for three weeks. But he still had to be in ICU the first month or two. Um, By the second month, he was well enough that they said, you know, he can go home, but he can't go to South Texas and he can't go to Austin. He has to stay local. So that's where the apartment came in as well, where now he was able to be in this apartment with me 
you know, outside of the hospital. So now he was able to get rest. He was not being poked and prodded in the IV cuff or the heart the blood pressure cuff going off every 30 seconds or whatever. He could get quality rest and quiet time, you know, in while he was recovering from the chemotherapy. And when, when he was still in the hospital, that was also my refuge. You know, like I said, I was there all day. I could come home at night, release whatever kind of emotions I had, whether it was anger, tears, just joy, because he had a great day. Um, you know, it was a lot of things that it, it helped me release all of that and then get strong again for him the next day. It was a home, literally away from home for me. He, we had to go to another apartment because they had a three-month limit on each apartment. And so when we got to the second or third month of the second apartment, he was just doing extremely well. The oncologist was like, wow, I've never seen someone take to this treatment so fast, um, have such great results in such a short amount of time. You know, they've like, you know, we really didn't think he'd make it through the weekend. And here he is, you know, five months into it, his scans actually were clear. There was no more lymphoma. So they're like, we're just going to do one more just to make sure, you know, we've got it all. So during that time, um, he, uh, he went home for about two weeks. Um, he told the doctors he was going to do that. He didn't ask. He just told them I'm going home for two weeks. My kind of man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so the deal was he went home. I got an apartment and the day he came back to Houston was my move in day for the apartment. That day we moved in. He, uh, he was in the bathroom. I could hear the water running. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to lay down here for a second, get, get a breather. And then, you know, we'll have lunch. And I ended up falling asleep for like 20 minutes on the floor, literally just on the floor in the apartment. And I woke up and I still heard the water running. I knocked on the door, no response. So when I opened the door, he was on the floor, mm. um, called 911 right away, talked to his, you know, eventually got his oncologist on the phone. She's like, he was probably gone before he hit the floor. It was just a massive heart attack. Just the amount of treatment, the harsh treatment that he had to go through, um, the age of his heart, uh, transplanted heart was probably just too much for him. And he had uh, passed away. That was March 11th of 2000 when it happened. I mean, I just hearing your story, thank you for taking us back. I mean, you can, I can feel through the screen, your love for your father mm -hmm. that just radiates 22 years later, walking us through that. And I'm, thank you for taking us back to that. Cause I can, I feel like I'm in the room with y'all. I feel mm -hmm. like I'm in the apartment and I feel the beauty of what your mission does because of the small things that you mentioned through your story that I know wouldn't have been possible if you were trying to sleep in your car or, you know, stay at a hotel, even like what the difference is in those moments that, you know, your mission doesn't exist to solve cancer, but it does exist to create the most vibrant possible time for people to get to spend with their loved ones. So I think, um, would you kind of talk us through how did you translate this traumatic, painful experience into Paul's place and, you know, connect the dots of like how you designed it with that lived experience in mind. I'm just so curious of what the program is today too. You know, I had like an aha moment in October of 2015, one of the networking groups, there was a, a lady from our local library that had a small resource center that helped individuals start their own nonprofits. It, it kind of walked them through the process. What's your idea? Um, why do you want to do it? How are you going to do it? And how is it going to be sustainable? 
you know, is there any other organizations that do the same thing that, you know, you might be just creating more competition for them or for yourself? So it kind of really walks through everything. And we have a Ronald McDonald House here in Fort Wayne. And then we have a local chapter of what they call Maine Anthony Children's Hope House. So they focus primarily on pediatrics. So there was no organization here in Fort Wayne that catered directly to just adult patients. So I met with each of the executive directors there. And I said, you know, this is my experience. This is my idea for this nonprofit. I'm not going to do pediatrics because you guys do it extremely well. You know, I'm not going to jump into that. This is going to be strictly for for the adult patients. And they just love the idea. They're like, finally, someone is doing this, you know, that could be sustainable. So they were just like throwing things at me left and right. This is what you need to do. Here's the rules and regulations that we have. Tweak it however you want to do it. Here are the contacts, you know, for, for companies that are very philanthropic in this area. These are the people, the foundations you want to go to for when you're ready to do grants. So they're like, don't do it now. Do it in two or three years. You know, when you're up and operational, you know, they were just throwing things at me left and right. So I ended up starting the organization at the end of December, 2015. And then in March of 2017, we started housing our first families. So, you know, that was the one thing I had the personal experience, I had the professional experience to do it. And I had the networking experience to know, you know, this is where I was born and raised. Everyone I went to school with now uh, have their own businesses or working in their parents' businesses. You know, I had that network there of this is where I could go to them to help get this funded. And so we've been housing families since March of 2017. So four years now, going on five, almost five years. And at our high point, we had three apartments. And then, you know, through COVID, we had to let some of them go. Um, In 2019, actually, we were blessed to have another nonprofit sell us some of their land that it was too small for them to use. And it's literally within walking distance of the VA Medical Center and one of the large hospital branches in in local downtown. I mean, this is all grassroots fundraising. We have two major fundraising events throughout the year and a lot of smaller ones kind of peppered in. And that's kind of where we're at, where we've got the plans and the builder and the special permits from the city to build a custom house for our mission. Um, But now, like again, we just need the funding for that to happen. So it's been a whirlwind of a journey the first four years. (laughs) Hey friends, this episode is presented by Virtuous, and they just happen to be one of our favorite companies. Let me tell you why. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you see and activate donors at every level. And here's the thing, Virtuous created a fundraising platform to help you do just that. It's much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous is committed to helping charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, which is simply putting the donor at the center of fundraising growing giving through personalized donor journeys, and by helping you respond to the needs of every individual. We love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sound like Virtuous may be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Hey friends, after meeting some of the most visionary leaders and world changers in the nonprofit sector today, we realize they all have one thing in common. They invest in themselves and their teams so they can stay relevant to what's working now to succeed and scale their missions. You know us, we believe education's for all, and that's when we created We Are For Good Pro. Pro is reimagining nonprofit professional development, giving you access to incredible live coaching events with some of the best thought leaders like Kishana Palmer, Lynn Wester, and more. Imagine being able to work through your challenges in real time. That's the power of Pro. Every week, we host a new workshop, giving you the playbook and tools to take immediate action, build your confidence, and grow your impact. 
Be the pro and get started today with a 14-day free trial. Head over to weareforgoodpro.com slash free. Okay, let's get back to this amazing conversation. I mean, I I see this very interesting thread in what you're saying and the and the phrase mm-hmm. survival mode is mm-hmm. very much a thread, not only of your story, but of this mission and almost of the moment that's mm-hmm. right here. You were in survival mode as you were trying to navigate this very difficult time with your father's illness. You know, you're in survival mode you know, once he's passed away. And Mm -hmm. even in pandemic, I mean, the people that you're serving are in that space. And so I wonder what advice you would have for nonprofit professionals who are working with their beneficiaries or their target audience who are in the survival mode and they need just respite. They need, I just think of peace and for things to just be handled, what w- what kind of advice would you give to nonprofit professionals as you have seen it from your lived experience about how to navigate that? Sure. Um, the best thing I would say is take a moment, take a breather, you know, refill your own cup so you have the strength and energy and motivation uh, to, to continue on with your mission. And while you're in that space, while you're in your quiet space or your respite time, remember your why. Well, you found your why because you started your mission, but when it comes to survival mode or when you're dealing with different barriers at any time, not necessarily just through the pandemic, but any any barriers that come up or obstacles, you have to remember your why. And every time I've had difficult situations come up, either with dealing with board members or not finding enough funding or, you know, whatever comes up, you know, going through a pandemic where we had a fundraising event cancel. You know what? I, I've always actually, anytime something like that's happened, where I have a split second of, okay, do I need to think about think about shutting it down? Within that same day, one of our families is called. Hey, I just want to say thank you so much for what you've done. You know, it's given us so much peace, and it's allowed our family to be together and not have to worry about anything financially. You know, we have our basic need of shelter covered, you know, and that allows us to focus on other things that are just as important or more important, you know, that when they're in their survival mode, it helps them do that as well. So, you know, that's, that's, I think the best thing I could say is take some time and remember your why when you're going through survival mode. I think that's so good advice. And, you know, we just came off of mental health week on the podcast. We shined a light on that this season and. I think that's right. I mean, I think that's really good advice. Like before you start trying to solve everybody else's problems, like focus on taking care of yourself. So, you know, we believe in the power of philanthropy and I know it's, it's had to be so full circle to see people join your mission philanthropically. Is there a moment that has stuck out with you or to you really resonated where philanthropy has just deeply moved you that you will remember forever? There was a family that we helped right before COVID. It was an elderly woman who lived just 45 minutes north of Fort Wayne. She was getting treatment um, before she came to us. And then the weather went bad, snowed. She was by herself. Her, Her children, her adult children lived in Illinois and Florida. So they were not here. And she was, she's like, I'm not gonna drive 45 minutes. It's close, but it's, you know, I'm feeling the effects of treatment. So I'm just not gonna drive. 
So when her sisters or when her daughters got wind of that, one of them came in from Illinois and she's talking with the case manager and they're like, you know what, hold that thought. Let's, let's see if there's availability. There's an organization called Paul's Place. You know, well, they provide that temporary housing. Let's see if they have something available. So I remember this call and I told them, yes, I actually I had a family leave a couple of days ago. So I do have availability. And the next day she was able to restart her treatment. Her daughters came in and they lived in the apartment. You know, she, they were there almost three months. We actually ask for a $10 minimum donation per night from our families. If they can do that, that's great. If they can't, we can work with them. Some do $10 a week and some just can't even do that. I know I couldn't even do that when I was going through my situation. So, but they, you know, they paid the the nightly donation request three months. That's almost a thousand dollars right there. So they paid that. She went through everything. Her situation was similar to what my dad's was. She was almost done. She had one more treatment to go. But then she had contracted the flu and pneumonia, and she just couldn't recover from that. She actually ended up passing away from pneumonia. So, you know, that that really hit me hard because her situation was so similar to my dad's. And, you know, I met the family. I I see the family all the time. I check them in and touch base with them. And her daughters were just just simply amazing anyway. And they said, you know, here's here's what we can and we'll we'll, we'll get you some more. I'm like, that's, that's okay. You know, you guys, you did what you needed to do. You, you kept the place clean and everything. Well, within a month, I get a check from a church it ended up being the, the woman's church that she went to. They donated another $500 and then COVID hit. And then, so we went to doing an online sponsor night for families. You know, we requested $49 for one night, $343 for a week, if you want to do that, or a thousand, a little over a thousand dollars for like a month. And that family donated another thousand dollars. And so even after their mother's death, they felt so moved by what we had provided for them. And they continued to to provide that, uh, provide that donation, you know, months after her, their mother's death. I mean, that just speaks to the power of what we saw so much in healthcare philanthropy, which is the the mightiness and the power and conviction of a grateful patient. And when you come alongside someone with compassion, with basic needs, with just love and concern, something happens in that moment where you are fused together for life with that person who is enduring probably one of the hardest moments in their life in such a vulnerable place. So I just have a really quick question for you, Amy. When you think about what Paul's Place has done since you opened that first door, I want to know what your father would think about this and think about these families who have come through. What do you think he would say? I'm sure he'd say he was he's very proud. I, I do have to say that Leading the 15 years leading up to starting the organization, the only dream I had of my father is we were looking for apartments. We were moving into apartments. We we're moving into a house. Um, sometimes he was done with treatment. Sometimes he was still going to treatment. So that was, I mean, it was the same dream. We're always looking for, for apartments. I guess finally in 2015, it hit me. That's what I should do. Because once I started Paul's Place, those dreams changed. They went to, we're just visiting. He's like, you're doing well. He's like, you're doing great. Love you. I'm proud of you. And I think I've had about three or four dreams like that. 
I want to tell you that we're so proud of you. And we're so proud of people who chase passion, who chase meaning and slide into those gaps of need to be a light to somebody. I love how you have shown up in your community to do what you can to be a light to others. And I just think to me, it is nothing more than an extension and expression of how you love your father and the way that you love these people. So bravo. Absolutely love this story. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. I just affirm everything that Becky just said to thank you for the way that you've shown up and honor your dad's legacy through Paul's place. So we ask all of our guests to just kind of, you know, round out, give us something actionable today, something that has been a mantra for you or a belief. We call it our one good thing. What's one good thing you could offer us in our community to round out this conversation today? I would say embrace adversity. Those who can be flexible enough to see all different types of options or create their own options are going to be the most successful. Whether it's starting a nonprofit, continuing through the nonprofit through crazy Mm -hmm. times, whether it's going through your own crazy personal stories as well, you know, embrace the adversity, know that there's going to be obstacles that are going to come up, take a minute, look at all the different options, see if you can create your own options and go from there. Well, I really feel inspired by what you've done. Just hearing this story, I love the story of Paul's Place. Um, How could people connect with you? If they want to learn more about how to get involved with Paul's Place, where are you on social media? Help us create a little bit of global community to rally around Paul's Place. Sure. We are on LinkedIn and we're on Facebook, Paul's Place for Families, the number four families. And, and then, of course, always our website that has our my story on it as well. And that's at paulsplace.org. Well, I think you've given all the community just, um, goodness, so much to reflect on today. And I just thank you for the way that you've shown up and pushed through adversity. Your story is so deep and so meaningful and just really cheering for all the good work that you're doing, Amy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode was brought to you by our good friends at Auth0. With Auth0, your nonprofit can do more with a login box. Greet prospects and rabid fans of your mission with authenticity. Simply make it easier for your team to manage data. There's so much that Auth0 login experience can do. Visit auth0.org for more info. If you enjoyed this episode, we know you'll love being part of the We Are For Good community. It's like our own social network where you can find like-minded friends, ask questions, share resources, and find inspiration anytime. Sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. Thanks, friends. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.